Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to part two of a two-part episode. We're covering the trial of the death of Laura Babcock. On June 30th of 2012, Laura Babcock's parents, Clayton and Linda, arrive home to find Laura's dog, her belongings, and a shoebox full of cash. On July 1st, Babcock's phone bill shows her final eight outgoing calls are to Millard. They exchange numerous texts. I want to talk about Clayton Babcock, Laura Babcock's father. He was concerned about being questioned in court by the man accused of killing his daughter. But despite a pretrial effort by the Crown to avoid this scenario, a judge allowed it to happen. Last September, with the Babcock trial just weeks away, Superior Court Justice Michael Code dismissed a motion asking for a lawyer to fill in for Millard for the questioning of three Crown witnesses, the victim's father, Clayton, her ex-boyfriend, Sean Lerner, and Marlena Menaces, Smitch's former girlfriend. The Crown's submission said that Babcock was concerned about his ability to give a full and candid testimony with Millard questioning him and he believed that he'd be more comfortable and less emotional with a court-appointed lawyer asking him questions. Lerner, according to the motion, was more comfortable being questioned by a lawyer instead of Millard and said that he would prefer it. Menaces was a little uncomfortable and preferred the idea of a lawyer stepping in. Millard opposed the motion, saying that he wished to personally cross-examine all witnesses at trial. Although Code sympathized with the witnesses, Millard's wish was granted. On the trial's opening day, the prosecution called Clayton Babcock as the first witness. After tearfully answering Crown's questions about his daughter and family life, Clayton Babcock was still watery-eyed as Millard stood up in court. His ankles were shackled, and he approached the lectern in the center of the courtroom. "'Are you nervous?' Millard asked Babcock before going on to question him about his daughter's personal life their relationship, her drug use, and work as an escort. At one point, Millard asked Clayton if he ever abused his daughter. He said no. Back in July 2nd of 2012, Millard buys a 32 caliber handgun from Matthew Ward Jackson, a Toronto rapper, also known as Ish. He appeared as a witness in Laura's trial wearing a black tracksuit with tattoos covering his face and neck. Ward Jackson told the court he was there against his will. After Crown Prosecutor Jill Cameron read out his criminal record, mostly for gun charges, including a conviction for the gun sale to Millard, Ward Jackson repeated many times that he couldn't remember specific details, though he was able to confirm a text conversation on July 1st of 2012. Ward Jackson wrote to Millard, a 32, but it's a really nice, nice compact piece. I'm sure you'd like it. When asked by Crown Attorney Cameron, who he sold the gun to, Ward Jackson said, I assume it went to Mr. Millard. He showed interest in it, but I'm not sure if it was for him or a third party. During the cross-examination with Millard, who was acting as his own lawyer, Ward Jackson seemed to stray from his earlier testimony. He said he went to elementary school with Smitch, 
and that Ward Jackson hung out with his sister, he says, in Oakville. He says he only saw Smitch coming and going, but that they didn't talk. Ward Jackson had pointed out Del Millard. He knows him through the occasional run-in. He says they were introduced through their mutual appreciation of vehicles, and that Ward Jackson noticed Dellen's car in the parking lot and went over to compliment it. Court heard that the two first met in that parking lot. Ward Jackson said he approached Millard out of the blue to admire one of his cars. Dellen suggested it was Ward Jackson who made the initial contact for the gun sale. He said, I'm going to suggest to you that you thought I had money to spend. He said, my first impression of you was that you were a manly man, interested in cars, girls, and guns. I assumed you would perhaps want it or would know somebody who wanted it. Ward Jackson responded telling the court, Mr. Millard never showed me an interest in acquiring a firearm. While Dellen attempted to put distance between himself and Ward Jackson, who was taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs and escorted back into custody, the Crown went through a number of phone records between the two men, including a 49-second call on the afternoon of July 4th. Cameron told the jury the call was made around the same time a photo was taken on Millard's phone. The photo showed his dog next to a large item wrapped in a blue tarp. Did you ask Millard why he needed a gun? Cameron asked the witness. Ward Jackson said he didn't. Nicole Robello, an intelligence analyst with the Toronto Police Service, gave a lengthy PowerPoint presentation that tracked Babcock, Millard, and Smitch's phones as they connected with the same cell phone towers. While much of the data presented was dense and complex, the jury heard that analysts are able to track a phone's location because calls and texts are transmitted through a cell site with the strongest signal, usually within about 100 meters of the device. Using phone records and Google Earth Maps, Rabello set out to show that both Babcock and Millard's phones hit the same cell site at 5324 Dundas Street West near Kipling Transit Station in Toronto's West End during the afternoon of July 3rd. Both phones then moved to or near Millard's home in Etobicoke. At the same time, Smitch's phone connected to a tower at 210 Markland Drive, just a few hundred meters of Millard's home. Rabello said records show the following morning, July 4th, Laura's phone continued to receive incoming calls and text messages, and later, cell towers connected with both her phone and Millard's phones as they moved west from Millard's home along the lakeshore. Somewhere near Mississauga, Laura's phone stopped making connections with any cell towers. Dellen asked Rabello to interpret some of the findings, but she said she couldn't. Her expertise is to compile the data and map it. He asked several other questions before concluding, I don't think you're able to answer the questions that I have. Thank you. Smitch's lawyer, Thomas Dungy, had only one main question for Rabello, suggesting that even if two people's phones connected to the same tower, it doesn't mean they're in the same precise location, she agreed. Earlier, a senior investigator with Rogers Communications, Daniel Fortier, took the jury through Laura's last outgoing calls, presenting records that showed how frequently she was using her phone before she disappeared. 
On June 30th, 2012, there were 38 outgoing calls made and 74 text messages sent, with similar volumes on July 1st and 2nd. Court saw the last outgoing call was made at 7.03 p.m. on July 3rd of 2012. It lasted 60 seconds and seemed to be consistent with checking voicemail. Fortier explained that after the phone number was entered, three digits were pressed, similar to a password. Like Rebello, Fortier testified that Laura's phone connected to a cell phone tower a few hundred meters from Dellen's home. During cross-examination, Mark Smitch's lawyer, Thomas Dungey, again pointed out that the cell tower information isn't a precise science. We don't really have an accurate picture of where the phone call came from because there could be an obstruction of some kind, he asked. Dungey asks if there can be an overlap with cell sites, and Fortier agrees. He then asks how easy it is to get a phone number under a different name. Fortier says that Rogers gathers information from the customer, like ID, but she says with a prepaid phone, they do not ask for ID because there's no monthly bill. Fortier also agreed that cell phone records can only highlight a general area, and whether large objects such as trees or buildings could cause a call or text to bounce from the nearest cell site to a farther one. Meantime, Dellen asked Fortier about a phone subscriber information, he said just because someone is billed for a phone doesn't mean they are using it. She agreed that that's possible. And Dellen asked Fortier about subscriber information and the difference between billing and usernames. The billing name, she explains, belongs to the person who pays for the phone, not necessarily the person using it. Millard asks the average distance between cell towers in rural areas. Fortier says it has a reach of about 35 kilometers. Dellen then talks about cell tower locations. He asks if someone is downtown where there are numerous buildings, would that impact how a caller text connects to a tower? She responded that actually no, downtown court areas have more cell sites. Laura and Millard's phones were tracked as they moved from Kipling Subway Station in West Toronto to Dellen's home. Mark Smitch's phone also pings in the area of Millard's home at 7.30 p.m. Millard texts Mitch, I'm on a mission, back in one hour. That was on July 4th of 2012. A black iPad seized from Smitch's mother's home, along with a Red Roots travel bag, also came under heavy scrutiny. A computer forensic analyst with the Ontario Police, who testified, told the jury that while the iPad was named Mark's iPad, an email address connected to Millard appeared on a number of the applications. During cross-examination, Dellen pressed Michael Ryder about the email addresses. Anybody who wants to create a Hotmail account, all you need is an internet connection, and you make up an address. There's no ID verification involved in the process, Dellen asked. Ryder said it depends. Some services require a second email address to prove a person's identification. Millard then asked whether the iPad had a password. Ryder said he found no security whatsoever on the device, so the fact that there are certain email accounts connected to the device doesn't really mean anything, Dellen asked. It's like the keys to a car. Anyone can hop in and drive it. 
a point that Smitch's lawyer tried to reinforce. He asked, You can't tell who's sending the messages, though, regardless of who the account belongs to. The analyst agreed. The prosecution said that Smitch's iPad originally belonged to Laura. It was a gift from her former boyfriend, Sean Lerner, alleging that the iPad was renamed Mark's iPad in early July after she was killed. Justice Michael Code made it clear to the jury that the serial number of Laura's iPad matched the one seized from Smitch's home. A forensic expert tells the jury that one of the email addresses connected to the iPad's iCloud account begins with Dell.Millard. Laura's red roots duffel bag is found during a police search in a bedroom at Smitch's Oakville, Ontario home. Toronto Police Forensics Officer Kim Seguin, who seized the travel bag, brought it into the courtroom and held it up for jury members to observe. Linda Babcock, Laura's mother, reached for tissues and wiped away tears at the sight of her daughter's bag. Less technical, but compelling evidence regardless, is that the Red Roots branded ladies' travel bag had a tag on it. The tag has a pull-out ID tag, so travelers can identify their bags, even when they may look identical. The one found in Mark's room was labeled Laura Babcock. You don't need cell tower forensics, billing statements, or email setup conditions to know who that bag belonged to. And not for nothing... But the savvy, I'm-the-smartest-guy-in-the-room, Dellen Millard, might have considered renaming technology and letting your co-accused to continue using it and a travel bag belonging to the victim with their name clearly inscribed on it may be a bad idea. Smitch would have been wise not to keep these items, even though they were generously offered. Basically, this is where you see these two criminals, as scary and terrifying as they are, look kind of like total dinks. If your little scrawny killer companion needs a red lady's travel bag to go with his bull's jersey, you may want to take that girl down to Walmart and treat her right. You can put that in your eliminator, Dell. But I acquiesce. On July 4th of 2012, at 2.40 p.m., Dylan Millard's phone captures a photo at his farm in the region of Waterloo. It shows an object wrapped in a blue tarp next to his dog. Millard sent Smitch the photograph, and the Crown claims it was Babcock's body. On July 4th, at 6 p.m., Dylan Millard ordered a new mattress and paid extra for quick delivery. On July 5th of 2012, Dellen receives a hulking animal incinerator called the Eliminator. He paid $15,000 for it, and it's a piece of farm machinery designed to dispose of livestock. The court saw photos of the accused killer Mark Smitch standing in front of the imposing black machine, smiling from ear to ear, and a screen capture found on the co-accused Dellen Millard's computer from a website that asks, What temperature is cremation done at? Dellen told people he was starting a mobile pet cremation business with his uncle Robert Burns, who was a veterinarian. However, 
Ernst testified that his nephew never asked him to launch such a business and called the idea absurd. The Crown alleged that Laura, 23, was burned in the incinerator that was dubbed the Eliminator by the manufacturer. In messages, Dellen referred to it as the barbecue trailer and that it was a high priority. The two also discussed propane hookups for the device. Dallin Millard texts Mitch on the afternoon of July 23rd, The barbecue has run its warm-up. It's ready for meat. A screen grab found on Dellen's computer about the necessary temperature from cremation was made at 10.38 p.m. The jury also saw a photo of an object engulfed in flames from inside of the eliminator, which was taken on July 23rd at 11.20 p.m. The Crown never claimed what was burning inside, but the jury also saw video pulled from devices found at Dellen's home. One was shot on July 23rd at 11.45 at an airplane hangar that was owned by Dellen Millard. It showed flaming embers floating in the air, with the sound of a low rumble in the background. On July 7th of 2012, there was a reminder set in Dellen Millard's iPhone calendar that read, Barn Smell Check. On July 11th, Millard and Smitch helped Slapman to build a trailer that will haul the Eliminator. On the 14th of July, 2012, Lerner reports Babcock missing to Toronto Police. Her and her family also files a report. On July 23rd at 3.07 is when Millard texts Smitch that the barbecue was run its warm-up and ready for meat. Their phones are tracked traveling from Millard's airport hangar to his farm at 8.38 p.m. The forensic anthropologist Dr. Tracy Rogers said she examined the two photos that were shot on July 23rd, which were found on electronic devices that were seized from Dellen's home. I was able to state that the objects in the incinerator appear similar to human bone. In the photos, objects can be seen engulfed in flames. One of them, Rogers testified, is similar to a human radius bone, likely a left outer forearm. Another is similar to a human humerus bone, which is the upper arm and connects to the elbow. Rogers said that she couldn't say for certain if the objects inside the incinerator were definitely human bones because she only examined photographs. Unfortunately, no body was ever recovered in connection with the case. On July 24th of 2012, Rap lyrics are created on Mark's iPad that read, The bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lay on some ashy stone. Last time I saw her outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find her phone. A friend of accused killer Mike Smitch broke down in tears in the witness box after the Crown played a video of Smitch rapping about burning the body and getting rid of the evidence. I realize that a white girl from Manitoba reading you rap lyrics sounds fairly repugnant and a little bit silly. However, the lyrics themselves are very disturbing. The issue for me 
is the recordings of Mark Smith rapping like he's a street guy from Compton when really he's a white boy from Ontario that relies on Dylan Millard to pay for his fast food and cigarettes for him and his girlfriend. <sighs> you be the judge. It just sounds really embarrassing to me. And I think the jury probably felt a wave of sadness and a slight amount of embarrassment for Mr. Smidge. So bitch started off all skin and bone. Now the bitch lay on some ash stone. Last time I saw us outside the home. And if you go swimming, you can find a bone. Find a bone? What? What? Find a bone. If you go swimming, you find a bone. Find a bone. Find a bone. It's just a lot to process, David Cronin, 22, told the jury. He paused for a few moments while testifying to gather his composure. Laura's mother, Linda, sitting in the front row of the public gallery next to her husband, held a tissue to her eyes. Cronin testified He'd never seen the 30-second clip of Smitch rapping, but the lyrics were the same ones that he heard five years ago. Cronin was just 14 at the time and still in high school. He said he was hanging out with Smitch and several other friends in Smitch's mother's garage in Oakville, Ontario in August of 2012. That was when he heard Smitch make a chilling confession. Cronin testified that Smitch said he killed a girl, burned a body, and disposed of it in a lake. After that, he sang us a rap song about it. Cronin said he didn't believe it at the time, thinking Smitch just wanted to be the big cool guy. It wasn't until he saw media reports that Laura Babcock was missing, nearly a year later, that he told his high school vice principal, who then called the Toronto police so he could give a statement. This is unlike his friend Desi Lavatoire who actually only exchanged information with police after he was in custody for another matter in 2014. Smitch's lawyer hammered away at Cronin during cross-examination for more than an hour, attempting to discredit his testimony and questioning the witness's own sordid past. It was almost an identical line of questioning that he used when another one of Smitch's friends, Desi, testified about the rap song and confession. Dungy grilled Cronin about his drug use and checkered past. Cronin admitted to being a recovered heroin addict, but he insisted he worked hard to turn his life around. Still, he was questioned on more than a dozen incidents that he was involved in as a youth, as well as getting kicked out of his parents' home. Cronin said he studied pre-law and at one point considered becoming a police officer. He said, I worked very hard to get my life together. Yes, I had problems when I was young. Yes, I was mischievous. I know you're trying to discredit my information, but I've worked very hard to get where I am today. Desi, who was also a part of Smitch's inner circle, told the jury about an encounter in Smitch's mom's garage, where Smitch pulled out an iPad and started performing a rap he wrote. The Crown also continued to build its case that Laura didn't disappear on her own accord. Michael Powell a director with the U.S. Border Control, testified briefly. He said border officials were contacted by Toronto police during their investigation. Powell confirmed the last time Laura Babcock visited the U.S. and returned back to Canada 
was on May 11th of 2012. The testimony is similar to what court heard earlier from a TD Bank employee. The Crown had submitted Laura's bank statements as evidence, and they showed that activity stopped after the date that she was alleged to have been killed. Millard, again acting as his own lawyer, attempted to poke holes in the Crown's theory, asking the border expert to list the numerous illegal ways that people can get into the U.S. Powell said he couldn't answer the question for security reasons. Smitch's lawyer also pressed Powell about illegal crossings, pointing out the U.S.-Canada border is the longest common border in the world and must be impossible to monitor 100% of the time. No, there's technology, Powell responded. The entire northern border is patrolled with technology or personnel. Here's the disconnect. Crown prosecutors have said Millard and Smith spent months planning Laura Babcock's murder and attempted to cover it up by burning her body in an animal incinerator. Laura, prosecutors alleged, was killed because she was involved in a love triangle with Millard and his then-girlfriend, Christine Nudga. Nudga, who was arrested on April 10, 2014, and charged with accessory after the fact in the Tim Bosma case, told police that she received Millard's letters. They came from his mom, who got them from Deepak, according to court documents. This happened while she was on court-ordered no contact with Dellen. Deepak was early counsel for Dellen in the Tim Bosma trial. The handwritten notes to Christina Nudga, 65 in total, were seized by police in her bedroom in 2014. That happened while Millard was awaiting trial for the murder of Tim. Deepak agreed to withdraw, as he appeared to be the only counsel who could be implicated in the transporting of the Millard Nudga letters out of jail. These letters were used in the Bosma case and in the Laura Babcock case, and some would contend that they are the evidence that really sunk the ship. However, Christina Nudga was not a witness in the Babcock case. She was in Poland, and it was originally planned by the prosecution to have her flown back to Canada as a witness. However, for some reason they changed their minds. It may have been driven by the performance that she gave in the pre-trial of the Tim Bosma case, where she was a hostile witness. And a really gross one, too. She made a point of excluding herself from knowing what they were towing behind Dellen's truck in a trailer that they used to deliver Tim Bosma's vehicle to his mother's home. The reason she gave was that she was giving Dellen Millard a blowjob while he was driving. Later, being the pig that she is, she went back and wiped her fingerprints off the trailer, removing prints from Dellen in the process, all the while claiming that she had no clue that they were delivering evidence to avoid capture for the murder of Tim Bosma. She claimed she just didn't want to be involved in whatever it was. Dellen didn't call her in as a witness in Laura's trial either, mostly because she would be then open to cross-examination by the Crown attorneys. This may have opened up a can of worms regarding that trial. If she referred to the Bosma case, this may bring it as evidence in the Laura Babcock case. See, the thing is, 
Dellen and Mark's already handed down conviction for first-degree murder couldn't be discussed in Laura's trial. The judge previously had ruled that the two cases were separate, so the courtroom had to specially set up, delivering Millard and Smitch to the court before the jury was brought in to hear the case. This way, the handcuffs could be removed from the defendants and tables could be covered so no one could see the fabric seat belt type fabric that was binding their legs. In fact, Dellen's podium was positioned beside the defendant's table, so he could rise to address the court and play lawyer without the jury seeing that he was bound. There was to be no clue to the jury that the defendants were already incarcerated, and they definitely were not to hear any evidence that the two had previously murdered a family man for his diesel truck so that Millard could save some gas money transporting his Jeep to the Baja races. They murdered him after Laura, and they rid the body by using the Eliminator exactly as they did with Laura. And the jury was not given the insight that Dellen, after this trial was completed, was up for another trial in the murder of his own father, which initially had been ruled a suicide after he was shot in the eyeball. Okay. Back to the letters that Dellen Millard sent surreptitiously to his orally fixated lady friend from prison. The letters, bound into binders for jury members, were presented through the Crown's final witness, a retired Hamilton police officer. He found them scattered in Nudga's bedroom in April of 2014. In one letter, Millard said, What I've written to you is a rough draft. We need to get our stories straight. He added, You said you wanted to be a secret agent. You can be mine. Here's your chance to be a covert operative. In his letters to Christina, he repeatedly professes his love for her and urges her to keep their communication secret. In one of the final letters read to the jury, Millard wrote, That stuff I wrote before, that was just brainstorming. Forget it. He ended it as he did many of his letters to Nutka, destroy this letter to protect me. The jury saw some of the 65 handwritten letters where he detailed the night Laura disappeared. It's a very real possibility you will be called as a witness, Millard wrote in one letter. Whatever you may believe, you need to put it aside. This is what happened. The night Laura disappeared... I came over to your place very early in the morning. I tapped on your window. I told you Laura was overdoing coke with Mark in the basement. We went to say goodnight to them. You saw her alive with Mark with cocaine. Maybe they were going to leave to get more. You and I don't like coke. We vaporized, we fucked, I drove you home. We did not go to see if they were still home. Later, when she's reported missing... I told you that Mark told me that she'd OD'd. It wasn't clear this happened at Maplegate. Mark wouldn't call police because he'd been charged with trafficking. Much later, you asked Mark if he's still selling coke. Dell made me promise not to, he told you. Because of that Laura bitch, don't you know? Even though you knew she OD'd with Mark, it ends with... Reread this a couple of times and destroy immediately... Another letter said, 
The next time you go to touch yourself, think of my hands running over your curves, the tickle of my breath inhaling of your scent. It goes on to describe an explicit sex scene and ends with, I love you, I'm thinking of you, Dylan Millard. She repaid his sexy compliments by scattering every letter all over her bedroom. Millard put forward a 10-page application for mistrial before the verdict was handed down. His complaint was the lawyer for co-accused Mark Smitch tried to pin Laura's alleged murder on him. In his mistrial application, Millard argued that Dungey put forward what's called an antagonistic defense. That was something both sides agreed they would not do during the pretrial motions. He pointed out that the Crown introduced evidence that Millard bought a handgun days before Babcock disappeared and an animal incinerator. Dungey did not call any evidence, but during his closing address said that the Crown had not proven Babcock was dead. Justice Michael Code rejected the argument and the plea for a mistrial. There was a real possibility that Smitch would get in the box and point the finger at you, but he's not done that, Code said. All Mr. Smitch's lawyer has done is pointed the finger at the Crown's case and said, Look closely at the Crown's case. It's as clear as day. The case against you is a strong case. Code was steadfast. Dungey did no wrong during his closing address and said it was within his rights to refer to the Crown's evidence. You've had notice of the Crown's case for years now. I told you back in June, you better get ready. It's common sense to me that this was going to happen, and that's your problem. Code continued, Anything else, Mr. Millard? I've beaten you up pretty badly, but that's what happens when you make a weak argument. Millard had no further arguments. The discussion took place in a separate room in the Ontario court from where the 12-person jury was sequestered and had been deliberating. After a long and difficult trial, the two men, previously convicted of murder, were found guilty of killing 23-year-old Laura Babcock. It took the jury five days of deliberation to agree on the verdicts, longer even than in the Bosma trial. There were tears from the Babcock congregation and stony faces from the defendants. Millard didn't look surprised. He was very straight-faced, nothing showing that he had any disappointment. Babcock's family and several jurors cried as the verdict was read out, amid quiet cheers from the courtroom. As the courtroom cleared, the family hugged each other, marking the end of a long and taxing trial. The pair was automatically sentenced to life imprisonment without a chance of parole for 25 years. As the jury deliberated whether to recommend concurrent or consecutive sentences, Sean Lerner, Babcock's ex-boyfriend, walked in wearing a dark grey pullover sweater. Linda Babcock stood up and gave him a hug. All 12 jurors recommended a consecutive sentence for Millard. Five recommended the same for Smitch, while seven had no recommendation. Justice Michael Code told jurors the consecutive sentencing provision is new to the criminal code, and he said the final decision on sentencing rests with him, but he will consider their recommendations. Clayton Babcock thanked the jury, the Crown, judge, police, and friends and family as he left. We wish you a Merry Christmas, he said. Laura will always be missed. <laughs>